Welcome to Sustainable Scotland, the podcast that focuses on the people and organisations that are moving the dial towards making Scotland a more sustainable place to live in. I'm your host, Sean Milne, a journalist and writer passionate about the environment, and on this series, we'll be examining the questions and challenges ahead. Are we now at a turning point with our attitudes to climate change? And are our good intentions now shifting into actions? In this first episode, we're looking at the findings of an exclusive Scotsman poll into climate change and what it tells us about Scotland's attitudes to the issue and our willingness to adapt. I'm joined by Yaki McNeil, Head of Policy at Smart Energy GB, and Fraser Scott, Chief Executive Officer with Energy Action Scotland. And just before we begin, I should mention that this episode is a paid partnership between Smart Energy GB and the Scotsman. So for me, this made quite fascinating reading, particularly the headline finding of the study, which showed that 72% of respondents are concerned about how climate change will affect their kids and their grandkids in the future. So to you both, what are your thoughts on this finding? And is it something that concerns you about the upcoming generations in your own families? Yakin, perhaps you can go first. It's really interesting, probably kind of what we expected but yeah it's it's sometimes when you see it in in black and white it can be quite uh, can be quite stark when you see how people are are feeling about the world feeling about themselves obviously we've had a a very intense and weird 2020 so I'm sure lots of those things have been uh, magnified uh, many many times but it's also good that they do think in this way which which sounds a bit bit perverse to say that but the fact that it's on their consciousness is, is really, really important. Because I, I remember back in, when I was growing up in the late 70s and, uh, and 80s, none of this was really part of the discussion. And we would, we'd probably paint for that now um, because we're trying to quickly, very quickly p- uh, play catch up. So the fact that it's very much at the forefront of people's minds is really, really important. The, the issue is then, how do, we, how do we address it? How do we take it forward and, and make things happen so that it doesn't become the worry or the stress that, that it perhaps needs to be. But yeah, it's a stark figure to see. And, um, but it's, I think it's something that we can, we can use as a catalyst to, to make change for the future. I think you're probably absolutely right, Yakin. Because I, mean, I don't know about you, Fraser, but certainly when I was growing up, you know, the, the notion that climate change was something that was really to be troubling uh, was perhaps completely alien to my own sort of parents or grandparents. I mean, how, how has it been for, for you and your family? I think one of the things that's really important from this survey is people are beginning to make that connection between the health of the planet and their own health and well-being and the health and well-being of generations to come. I was always encouraged. I worked in youth and community work back in the sort of 90s. Younger people always understood the importance of their environment. They were always willing to take action, stand up for their rights. But I think as we all become older, a view of the world changes. Unfortunately, it changes. I think what we're seeing now, though, is there is a far stronger connection for all of us between our health and well-being and the health of the planet. So I think I feel hugely encouraged by it. But what perhaps concerns me a little is that we make sure that we take everyone with us on this journey, that, you know, it's not so much about being left behind, but people need to be engaged with it all. It will come at a tremendous rate of change if we are to be successful. 
And in part of that change will mean an awful lot of people will have to change the way in which they live their lives. So obviously a key part of that and a key reason we're here today is because you know energy has to be a real factor in this. So, so Fraser, just continuing on from that, that point, you know, how much of an impact does energy use in the home have on climate change? You know, how, do you, how do you get that through to people like me that is vital? I think for us all, we, we underestimate at times how much the individual has an impact. Um, how you living in your home has a tremendous amount of energy that's required. You know, we, we spend a large amount of our money on energy costs to heat our homes, to cook our food, to wash our clothes. All of those things are really, really vitally important to our, our everyday experience. Scotland, we have a bit, we have a significant disadvantage though. We've got almost a quarter of people in Scotland who live in fuel poverty, where they spend a significantly high proportion of the income that they have on heating their homes and powering their devices. You know, we we have a real challenge in embracing a generational shift towards much more environmentally friendly, low carbon lifestyles. Because actually our starting point is really quite poor for this. The efficiency of our homes isn't good enough. The equipment that people have in their homes, it's not good enough, it's not efficient enough. Um, People simply don't have enough money and the costs to heat and power your home are still too high. So it's a huge impact on so many of us. And I think COVID is bringing into stark uh, relief just how much change we're going to see there because of a loss of income and jobs that we'll probably see a 25% increase in the number of households who may be fuel poor, taking us up to nearly 30% of all Scottish households who start from this very low starting point. We've got a real big job to do there to make a difference to every home and to every household and to every life. Now, that sounds like a massive challenge. You know, it's quite a bleak picture you paint there in terms of where we are right now. But there have been advances in this. You know, we see all kinds of new technologies coming through. And yeah, and that's, I think, one of the areas where, where you guys play a significant part through smart meters. You know, how can they contribute to, you know, this greening the energy system and perhaps alleviating some of the problems that are outlined by Fraser there? and also in helping Scotland achieve its own sort of carbon net zero targets along the way. Well, I think that we, we can all agree that the energy system is long overdue uh, a bit of an update and, and an overhaul, and that has been happening uh, over the last decade or two, which is great, so that the, the energy system has been evolving and getting ready for digitalization. However, we now come to the, the tipping point where it really needs to happen, and, and it needs to have consumer action and consumer uh, acceptance of it so that the, the technologies in place, but also the consumers can then adapt their behavior on the back of that to take advantage of the technology, the innovation, the data, the uh, behavioral change prods that come along um, with this. So by improving the system, but improving your energy system, it allows us to incorporate more um, renewables into the system. Scotland is always shouting and screaming as to how how at the forefront of renewables it is, which is, which is absolutely right that it, that it does that. But it, we need to have a system that can exploit those resources a lot more. And 
The analog system doesn't really allow us to do that, but the digital uh, and more flexible system allows us to make sure that we can exploit our wind, our wave, our, our hydroelectric, like make sure that we make the absolute most of them and provide a system that relies increasingly relies less on coal uh, and other forms of, of, of energy, especially carbon sourced energy. Um, so by having a, a modern system, the resources at our fingertips can really become the, 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 the cliche of be, being a real powerhouse for us to keep the lights on and to keep them on uh, sustainably as well. But for example, some of the things that Fraser was talking about there, you know, some of those figures around fuel poverty and inefficient homes in Scotland, it doesn't make pleasant reading, but it's fact. Scotland really does have a massive challenge on its hands and organisations such as Energy Action Scotland and all the variety of consumer fuel poverty champion groups that, that existed there are doing a huge amount of work, but they have got a, a bit of a mountain to climb, uh, which, as he said, has been kind of exacerbated uh, this year. Now, technology such as smart meters doesn't solve those problems overnight, but what they do is they provide an additional tool to the toolkit for those in fuel poverty to perhaps climb out of the uh, the, the poverty trap that they're in. It gives them more information. It'll open up more tariffs. It will remove some of the premium costs that come with uh, prepayment uh, meters that exist in the analog world. So there are benefits for those who are struggling with income uh, or who are recognized as being in fuel poverty and even those in extreme fuel poverty as well. For example, I'm originally from the Isle of Barra near the Hebrides and I, I know my, my parents' home, it's, it's an old croft house and it is still cold uh, because of the thickness of the walls, the inefficiency of the insulation. So I've seen it firsthand how, how inefficient housing stock can really impact on somebody's life and, uh, and somebody's well-being. But there is technology and there is innovation that will help improve that. And when it all starts to come together as a package, it makes life a bit better. Individually, they will not solve the problem. But certainly when you have things like smart meters coming in, providing data, enabling innovation, uh, enabling intervention potentially from some of the suppliers with people who are in fuel poverty. That's really where the game changer can start to happen. But we need that technology in our homes to enable that to happen because in the analog world, it just doesn't really happen. And as Scotland progresses towards its net zero targets, which is great, you know, we're all, we all want to do a bit to make that happen. Technology is going to be, again, the game changer that will enable that to happen. We're a technology age. Everything we do around us is based on technology, whether it's tracking technology or some form of data technology. Smart meters, again, are a foundation stone in the energy sector, which will allow us to start making behavioral changes that contribute our own wee bits towards Scotland's national um, strive towards net zero. So smart meters are great as something in your home to provide you with information. But in terms of when they all start coming together and communicating and providing a, a platform for data and technology and innovation, they can do lots of good things towards reducing fuel poverty to uh, Scotland's journey towards um, uh, net zero, but also in terms of creating an energy system that is fit for the future, but it's also fit for the consumers as well. So they can interact more with their energy consumption more than they've ever done in the past. Okay, so we've got the problems which have been outlined by both Fraser, you, you talked about fuel poverty in particular. And yeah, we've got the technology to do these things. You know, it seems to be the pace of change is what needs to, to go ahead here, be pushed on. And something that really struck out for me from the survey 
was that we saw more than 92% of people say they themselves were willing to do their bit for environment. So in the course of your day-to-day work, when you're speaking with people, you know, have you yourselves noticed a, a change in attitude and, I don't know, more of a willingness for people to you know, get involved and, and do their bit to, to help not just combat climate change, but all the social benefits that come with it as well? Yeah, I think that there is slowly a, a change in attitude towards it. And I'm sure people like Fraser will see it certainly more than we do, given that their frontline role with people who are consuming energy. But we certainly hear the fact that people do want to do their bit. They want to play a part in this. But the problem is quite often they don't know how to do it. Um, and, and that can sometimes be the issue. So, And sometimes they think that their wee bit of turning the lights off or turning the thermostat down one degree doesn't mean much. But actually, what it does when, it, when you start to... Uh, when it starts to become collective, it starts to make a big impact. So, for example, if we were all to get smart meters and, and have that technology in our home, we could reduce our energy consumption by 2 to 3%, which to the man in the street might just sound like nothing. But actually, to take 2 to 3% of energy out of the system and also the, the carbon that comes with that is quite considerable. Um, so our own wee actions can make a big, big difference. But quite often, a part of their job is educating the consumer as to what they can do. And actually, sometimes what they're, they're already doing does make an impact and to believe in themselves um, and, and to just to keep on doing what they're doing and also work with their peers, whether it's their family or whether it's their colleagues, to educate them as well. Because sometimes it's the small steps and the small things that can actually make uh, a big difference in the long run. Fraser, would you agree? Oh, yeah, I, mean, I, I do agree with you. I can hear that, you know, well, a few things. I mean, yeah, technology, absolutely. I mean, we, we are now living in a 21st century and yet we still have systems that seem very, very old-fashioned and outdated. They need to change. They need to provide more control and choices to consumers, consumers who want to make a difference. They want to make a difference in their own lives and they also want to make a difference for others. Uh, and I think that, you've know, touched on that earlier, you know, that's a hugely encouraging position. But loads of people find it really tough really tough to know what to do. They rely on tremendous advice services that are out there, whether that's your local citizens advice bureau or local energy advice or national energy advice, but they require help and support to make sure that they do the best thing that they can do, the best thing for them, the best thing for their families. And that's not easy. Um, There are so many things out there that you could begin to do. You could improve the efficiency of your home. You you could change all the appliances in your home. You could do all of those kinds of things. And that would have an impact collectively. That would have a huge impact. But for me, first and foremost, I think people have to be doing the right things for themselves to make sure that their health and well-being at this point is being looked after, that they're living in a warm and comfortable home. They kind of their health and well-being isn't being affected by drops in temperature. I remember, I think I read um, recently that visits to GPs um, for respiratory illnesses increase by almost 20% for every single degree that the temperature falls below five degrees centigrade. Now, you may say, yeah, that's when it's cold. Yeah, when it's cold, we see a huge impact on our National Health Service. Now, that's money in the public's money that could otherwise be used for other things and better things. So what we need to do are make these changes 
give the best advice, incentivize and support people to change the way in which they live in their homes and the quality of their homes. But we do need to do this at pace because the targets that have been set for us, whilst they are ambitious, the change will need to be incredible if we are to keep pace with that. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, I think government sets tremendous targets, but what we need to do is follow that up with the scale of investment that's going to get us there. I think we spend £100 million a year in Scotland improving the efficiency of people's homes. We probably need to spend more than double that every single year if we are going to lift people to a point where the impact of their home on climate change is shrinking. But not only that, is that they're living in the kind of homes that means that their health and well-being is protected and the National Health Service is not put under huge pressure every year with huge additional costs. I think £100 million a year is spent in Scotland by the National Health Service dealing with the effects of people living in poor quality homes. So, you know, there's a lot we can do there, but we have to look about the system and rebalancing and addressing the system as a whole so that we can make these changes. So the fact there is this pressure being put on the frontline services, you know, that's probably more in focus now because of the pandemic as well. You know, how else might those resources be deployed in such a, a situation. But something else that springs to mind just from some reading uh, I had before the show was you know, the hidden element of fuel poverty and people who perhaps can't access the help that you're talking about because people simply don't know. And, and yeah, I can, something that caught my eye was the fact that smart meters in particular can be you know, an early warning sign for some of this. If people perhaps aren't using their energy in the way you might expect, you know, that could be you know, a, a signal that something's wrong and much in the way that Fraser's outlined. Yeah, I think the the information that smart meters and the display that comes with the the, the, the meter, you've got the dis- this display in your home, which you can look at at any time of, of day or night, and, and it'll give you uh, a, a near real-time inf- uh, uh, reading of, of how much en- energy you're using. Um, so in the home, it can certainly tell you if there's a problem because you could be, as, as Fraser was saying, you know, do, trying to do as much as you possibly can to reduce your energy costs. But the, the condition and the efficiency of your home is just making that almost impossible. And the smart meter and the data that comes with that will tell you that no matter how much you keep the windows closed, no matter how much you tinker with the heating, no matter how much you use draft excluders and, and all the various things or, or your lights, there is still a problem going on in the house, and that might be something that's quite fundamental. And it could be the fact that your windows have seen better days, your insulation was done 20, 30 years ago, and it's no longer insulating anything. Uh, it's just basically an ornament beneath your floor or in, in your loft. So the data that you can get is really important because it allows you to make changes and maybe work out that something else is going on in the property that perhaps you didn't realize. But also the data that's available through things like smart meters with consent from the, 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 the householder and the bill payer, a third party could access that data and then provide real information to that individual. So, for example, um, if you wanted to speak to like an advice service, an energy advice service, or if you wanted to speak to maybe a, a debt service or something, they could access your energy data to work out what is going on in your life that we can perhaps address 
or if we can't address it with you, is there, a, is there another party, whether it's a, a government support scheme or do we need to have a conversation with your energy supplier to, to make your property and your energy costs come down as much as possible? So there's a lot of potential there with regards to the data that's available. Because at the moment, the entire energy system in terms of the consumer and the supplier, it's all estimated. It's all guesswork. And it's guesswork on your part and it's guesswork on their part. And it's not really accurate. Where by having that data, you can then make really informed choices that affect you rather than generic advice, which is quite often given. Um, and that's, while the generic advice is great, um, it's, it can be better for the individual if they get really bespoken uh, information that's relevant to them and relevant to, to, uh, to their property. You could also, for example, have a relative, um, you know, had my father still been alive uh, up in, on the Isle of Barra, I live in Edinburgh. If he had a smart meter and he allowed me access to his smart meter, I could just make sure he gets up in the morning, he's putting the heating on, he's making himself his breakfast, he's making himself his lunch, he's making himself his dinner. So you could see those peaks in the data. And you, so you could, you could keep a remote view of somebody just to make sure that they're, they're safe and they're well and they're looking after themselves. So it does really help have those benefits um, as well so that people can live independently for longer, but equally they can look after themselves uh, as well. So there's a load of potential there. And as I say, this technology will not solve those issues such as fuel poverty or, or isolation, but what they will do is they will certainly support it in some way to make sure that people can live better and live slightly happier as well. I think there must be a, a realisation from the general populace as well, you know, consumers like me, you know, because the survey is suggesting that somewhere in the region, 85% of people now want to have a greater visibility over their energy use. And some 75% said that the visibility would actually help them become more fuel efficient. And I dare say this also helps them deal with their, their own household budgets. Yeah, I think that, that's absolutely right. I think visibility, you can only make choices if you know what's happening. The more details you have, the more choices you can make. And we know from our surveying of, of people who have smart meters um, that about two-thirds of people who have a smart meter um, are more conscious of high energy appliances um, uh, and when they use them. So they are able to then adapt their behavior. So we have to remember this rollout and this, this technology is, is not in, it does not want people sitting in the dark or with, in the cold. What it's encouraging people to do is just think a bit more about when you use your energy and how you use it uh, and be a bit more careful. But you can only be careful when, you know, when you're not being careful. Um, and that's certainly been the case for me with my smart meter. I know as soon as the oven goes on to make dinner that the uh, the display is going red because it's 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 not a particularly new oven which I need to sort. But it's but it's telling me that that particular appliance is 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 high energy use. So you can then make your choices uh, around that. You know, making sure that you're using appliances more efficiently. For example, washing machines or, or tumble dryers if if you do have them. Making sure that you're making most of them. Rather than, rather than just having them there to use handy uh, and at, at a whim, you can then start to make choices of, well, I don't need to use that today. I will maybe plan my day better, so I don't need to use that uh, a bit better. But that can only really come with having access to data and having that data visible to you. Right. That's, I'm, I'm in totally. I need to get a smart meter. You know, I boil the kettle like nobody's business, so I need to do that. But Fraser, until I do that, or perhaps for people who are also not in the situation of having one yet. What other things can they do to manage their everyday energy use and their budgets? And 
what kind of support is available to them? I'm glad you're in as well. I've got a smart meter these days. It's I've only had one for about a month. And one of the things it tells me is I'm over my budget. And that's every single week that I've had it, I've gone over my budget. Now, for me, I'm thinking I can probably manage that. But as a useful set of information, uh, I was in a difficult circumstance. I'd be looking for help now because my budget would be over. That sounds to me like that's that good use of data. Then you might begin to take steps. And I think that's fine for a lot of us who've got sufficient income to take steps, to reduce our costs. There's an awful lot of people out there who the only recourse they have is either to stop consuming things by switching things off, and that's how they may manage, or to seek crisis funding in order to manage their bills and their costs. You know, and I think that's the, the difference we have between a lot of our households. We have many households who have sufficient to make changes themselves, to lower their consumption, to manage their costs. But we still have a whole cohort of people where that's not a choice that they have. Their only choices are to do things that, for most of us, you think that's going to just ridiculous. Why would you switch off all your devices and switch off your heating? It's simply because I don't have enough money to pay for this bill. But it is helpful that the devices out there can give you clues sooner than we've ever had that information before. You used to have to wait till your bill came in before you would find out just how much you've been consuming. You can see it much more in real time. And I think that's a huge advance. And we, we should all be moving towards this. This is the 21st century. We should have that level of information to allow us to have the amount of control that we need to have in our homes. But we still have to remember that there's an awful lot of people out there where that, that control doesn't exist for them. They're just not in that position. And that's what the advice services are for. And they will push and direct people towards support where they're eligible. There will be many people who will be eligible for support who just simply never ask for it. They probably don't know where to go or what to ask for. But they can get help to improve their homes and then access better equipment, better devices. They can access supports, financial supports, whether that's from your energy supplier or whether it's from a local charity or organisation or a national body. Um, because after all, people have many different circumstances. You or I, we probably have direct debits and pay for dual fuel type tariffs. But loads of people are on things like prepayment meters where they're pretty much paying as they go, but they're paying more than you and I do per amount of heat or energy that we consume. And yet, very often, they're the people who can afford the least. So, I, you know, I think we have a complicated system that needs to be simpler and easier for people to understand and be much fairer than it is. And that's a huge challenge. And I think we can get there because I think we know what to do. I mean, you know, we've got a vaccine for COVID in a remarkably quick amount of time and we're going to immunise the planet in about a year. If we could just bring some of that resolve to solving this particular problem and to climate change, my God, what a step forward that would be. As well as the development work needed in this and, you know, the technical solutions and the awareness, etc. I'm I'm curious, Fraser, in your line of dealing with people on a day-to-day -day basis, 
Do you see any trends? Is it generational? Is it some people are, are too embarrassed because they're a bit older and it's not what they used to do in their day? Is, is it younger people? Is, is it right across the, the matrix? It's right across the piece. I think that's one of the things that's, that's very clear. But yeah, those on the lowest incomes living in the areas of greatest disadvantage, yeah, they're the most affected by fuel poverty. Some of our most vulnerable people are also the most affected by fuel poverty, whether they be the oldest people in our population or people who have life-limiting conditions or disability. You know, those are the people who need support, and they get support from organisations that they trust, um, whether that's you know charities, carers, housing associations, all of those organisations, they're trusted by so many to give that kind of advice and support. But but I do think it's one of these things that, you know, fuel poverty is not so discerning. Many of us could find ourselves in that situation if things take a turn for the worse. Um, income is a huge factor in um, fuel poverty. And obviously we're about to see a huge economic shockwave go through our society which will result in many, many more people experiencing um, fuel poverty for the first time. I'll never forget all the people who are still there, who've been there all that time. They're the hardest to reach. They don't get the support that they need. And it can have a catastrophic impact on their lives. Fuel poverty kills six people every single day in the winter. Six people die every single day because of fuel poverty. So two and a half thousand people over the winter period. And for me, when I joined Energy Action Scotland, that was possibly the most shocking thing of all, is that in the 21st century living in Scotland, that number of people die because of fuel poverty. So, you know, it, it may paint a very bleak picture. And I don't mean to paint a bleak picture. This is just the fact of it. That's how it is. That's why we need to take action. That's why we need to move faster. That's why we need to have strategies and plans in place in order to address fuel poverty and to meet net zero and our climate change ambitions. But my goodness, we have to organise ourselves in such a way as we've perhaps never done before, perhaps in only the way that we've just done globally to try and solve a global pandemic. We need to mobilise the same kind of creativity, thinking, fast movement in order to solve these problems. I guess when you put in such stark terms, you know, it's such a sobering statistic that we, you know, you, you presented there. And I guess the chief way forward for this is conversation, people to keep talking about it, podcasts like this, speaking to your family members, speaking to your colleagues, however it's done. At the top of the, the podcast there, we we mentioned how the older generation were now more concerned for their kids and their grandkids. You know, we see the Greta Thunberg of the world mobilizing, as you suggest there, Fraser. The survey itself, the survey suggests that there's a distinction in attitudes between, you know, what different age groups in Scotland think of climate change. You know, over 50%, more than half in the under 20 age category said that their conversations about climate change had increased since lockdown in March. While in the age groups over 25, the total was less than 50%, less than half. 
We also saw that 50% of those aged under 25 said they were more concerned about climate change since the coronavirus pandemic began. Again, those over 25, it was less than half. So just continuing on from what you said there, Fraser, you know, why do you think there's such a divergence in attitudes towards climate change between these different age groups? Where's the sense in it? I think your, your earlier figure, which showed that many more people these days have much higher levels of concern and awareness, um, was the most important bit. I think there are differences between um, age groups and their attitudes, and I think that's always been the case. I think that younger people, uh, when they look at these things, are much more concerned because they see the world they want to live in and they want it to be better than it is. And I think that's a fantastic ambition to have. I think as you become older, there are many, many other things that bring come into your concerns, whether it's economic, employment, and other things. Um, I don't think it diminishes how much you care I just didn't think it just comes through when you do a survey that somehow all these other factors weigh on your conversation. But you care as much because you care as much because it's the world you want your children to live in. It's, it's partly the world that you want to live in and have always wanted to live in. And you understand what the impacts have been um, of the choices that you've made, whether that's the vehicles you've driven, flights you've taken, waste you've produced, the energy that you've consumed, you've appreciated it. So I think you still care, but I, I do think it's probably reduced because of other things that you've taken on board when you, as you get older. Okay then, Yakin, how do you think then that giving people, more people, greater visibility of their energy use can help shift those attitudes further you know, towards these kind of decisions towards a more sustainable lifestyle and lifestyle choices? I think it's, it's fundamental. If we're asking, as Fraser was saying, people to make behavior changes, to change the, their entire relationship with energy and, um, and no, to, to value it more, because remember that, that energy does come from somewhere. It, it has to be created from something. Um, and quite a lot of that is still carbon. We, we need to decarbonize as much as we possibly can, but that's, that's a long-term plan. That's not going to happen tonight, tomorrow, next month. Um, so we have to remember that actually by us consuming energy, we are still consuming a lot of carbon uh, type, uh, type energy. And that does have long-lasting impacts. So it is considering what you're doing today and, and, and what, um, what, what are the actions of what you are doing today? What are they, how long are they going to last? What are the ramifications uh, of that? How long are, are the impacts going to, going to be for? So we have to be more conscious of that. And I think we are becoming more conscious of that, going back to the area discussion of, but do they, do we know what to do in order to play our part? And I think that's some of the, the issue as well. And, you know, one of this, you know, from a, from a very selfish point of view from, from our campaign, one small step can be getting a smart meter. By doing that, you're, you're making, starting to make a change. But then on the back of that, by starting to adapt your behavior to understand by doing something today, will that still have an impact and a legacy tomorrow or next week or next month? So you have to consider that as well, because we are in a bit of a disposable society, um, for example, around uh, the food we consume and you know, the fast fashion. Everything is here now, 
and it's gone tomorrow. And we take a bit of an attitude with that with regards to energy as well. So we have to be a bit more conscious of what our actions in the home and collectively uh, as, as a society are by, having, by making those actions and making those decisions. How, what, what are the long-term impacts on, on that? But by then empowering the consumer with data and information, they can then st- still start adapting um, their, their behavior on the, on the back of that. Now, that can be some very small steps such as you know, switching, switching all your lights off. You know, sometimes my flat's like Blackpool Illuminations. It's just, you know, it's all go, but doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, it could be the, the, the cliche of turn your thermostat down one degree. As cliche as it might sound, it does make a difference to, the, to your own pocket, but also to the environment. Or it could be something a bit more fundamental around the fabric of your building. Is your home in a poor condition? Is the fabric of your home needing looked after? Or are the appliances within your home pretty much past their best and now costing you more money than, than they're worth. But you can only know those and uh, know those things and make the choices on the back of that by having data and by having visibility of your costs. So it's the same with, with anything, everything else in today's society, whether it's your mobile phone or whether it's your broadband usage or whether it's your calorie intake or whether it's how many kilometers you run every day. Everything is tracked to, uh, to almost to the nth degree. You pretty much know what you're at you can dial into your bank. You know, you can you can transfer money from your bank on, on the strength of a thumbprint these days. But we still don't really know how much we're consuming in our homes with regards to energy to any great degree. Now that is changing through smart meters and data. But as Fraser said, we need to kind of pick up the pace to make sure that we all get one and we can all start making the choices. And then start making the choices to make sure that our, our positive choices are having a positive impact on our homes on our families, on our communities, ultimately on, 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 on the planet. But for, from our, for us, data is at the heart of that. And we need to have data in order to inform people as to how they can make choices for the better. Okay, central theme to today's conversation has been the need to take action. You know, knowledge is power and that we can all do our bit. You know, 12 months from now, we're going to have the world's leaders on our doorstep in Glasgow for COP26 assuming it gets to go ahead. Yeah, I can may as well ask you first, you know, given everything that's been said today, given the challenges we still face, what do you think the lasting legacy of the conference will be? And how do you think it will compare to perhaps previous climate change conferences where we saw, for instance, the Paris Agreement emerge? Again, it's a cliche around once in a generation or once, once in a lifetime. And I think the world is screaming out for something to happen. And, but it needs leadership. And COP26 is going to be where that leadership needs to be shown in its strongest possible terms. Um, you know, global politics is changing, as we've seen uh, in recent weeks. Uh, we've seen the attitude towards, you know, the, the, the big emerging economies such as India and China really starting to play their part in that as well. They, you know, the, the more they play the part, the more impact it will, it will have across the world. But this time next year in, in Scotland, Scotland can be the place where it happens and where that game changer happen, uh, takes place so that really we can start changing our attitude towards how we handle and manage the place in which we live. And I think if we miss that opportunity, we've kind of missed it for a while because I think there's, there's, there's always an opportunity where politicians will be forgiven for doing things, even if it's unpopular. 
And I think next year will be that, even if they have to make some unpopular choices in order to change our behavior with regards to how we treat the planet, they will probably be forgiven for that, providing it has a long-term achievable goal that will benefit all of us and those who come after us as well. So I would love to see COP26 as being the game changer and being the place where tough decisions are made and not ignored and not shirked, but actually taken that lead to long-term goals and benefits for the future. The world is screaming out for action. Can COP26 be the game changer then, Fraser? I think I'm optimistic. Um, I'll be honest, I remember the first Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio, when the world was incredibly optimistic. I genuinely feel for COP26, uh, a global optimism, that we, we, we can come together. We can identify what needs to be done. We can resolve to make the changes that are necessary in, in order to ensure the health and well-being of our planet and therefore the health and well-being of our people. That's, that's why we're going. We're going to try and ensure that our health and well-being as humans on this planet is protected. Now, I do feel optimistic, but I do think it will be incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult. You know, it's a massive, massive challenge. Of course, it's going to be difficult. But in so many ways, the solutions are always very simple. We just need to take the steps, the steps together with agreed commitment, and we follow it through. There are lots of little things we can change. That's the detail. I think what we might see for the first time is genuine global collective agreement on what needs to be done. Uh, and I think we've begun to see some of that and the bright lights of some of that coming in changes that are happening across the globe because we cannot do this on our own. This is not one of those moments where in isolation we can make great strides. Um, we can't because our impacts are felt across the globe we are impacted by things that happen in other parts of the world. So therefore, this is a time where we have to come together. So, you know, I, I feel very optimistic. I think the legacy for COP26 for me, it's great that it's happening in Scotland. But to be perfectly honest, this is a global problem. Where the meeting happens, it's not about it. It's about what's decided there. When we come away from it with that genuine commitment. I feel optimistic. Well, it's nice to end on a bit of optimism. And who knows, perhaps where Scotland leads, others can follow. And that is all we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Yakin and Fraser. And thanks to you for taking the time to listen to this, the first of our Sustainable Scotland podcasts. Let us know your thoughts on this episode and any issues you'd like us to cover in future, simply by tweeting us at The Scotsman. Mark Wilson is producer today, and we'll have more episodes very soon. So please, subscribe to Sustainable Scotland wherever you get your podcasts.